This is Drew Kaiser, and you are listening to Wide Margins, Episode 43, The Butterfly Effect. There's a bypass in Henderson, Tennessee, that I think I may have something to do with. This goes back to my years as a student at Freed Hardeman University in the 90s. In those days, I lived in a dorm called Brigance Dorm. It was an old converted hotel. It's no longer there. It's been bulldozed to make room for other things. But in those days, I lived in that dorm, and that dorm and a couple of other buildings were separated from the main campus by a very busy highway, Highway 100 that ran from Memphis, Tennessee to Henderson and consequently straight through Freed Artiman's campus. So anywhere, anytime I had to return from an activity on campus, class or chapel or something like that, I had to cross this little crosswalk across that very busy highway to get to my dorm. And it was a day like that when I was returning from chapel. Everything seemed good. The weather was nice. I was walking with a friend, and we were crossing the crosswalk, and I saw two of my instructors stopped at the crosswalk on my right to let me and the other students go across the street. I didn't really pay much attention to what was going on on my left, which was a big mistake because as I stepped onto the highway, I was immediately struck by a vehicle that was moving very fast, but it stopped just as it struck me and kind of wedged me into the air and propelled me onto the hood of the car, and I rolled with the momentum onto the windshield of the car and then unhurt, just kind of awkwardly scooted off the hood. I was so embarrassed because everybody was watching, wondering if I was hurt, mortally wounded, and I just wanted to get out. So after scooting off of the hood, I didn't even look back. People were shouting at me, are you okay? And I just kind of waved them off and made it as fast as I could for my dorm. Went into my room, locked the door, and waited for everybody to forget about it. Well, that didn't happen. Um, Unfortunately, many times it's the one thing that's brought up about my years at Fried Hardeman University. I'll run into professors or administrators that were there during my time there, and they'll say, how are you doing? Have you been hit by a car lately? Or something like that. And that's kind of become my legacy as a student there. And it is what it is. But as I said, it may have come to some good. It was a very busy highway. It was a problem all the time for students and other people who were trying to make their way back and forth through the campus. It was a problem for the cars trying to move through there. And a very expensive bypass was constructed, big bridge on the outskirts of Henderson so that vehicles no longer have to drive through the campus to get from point A to point B. They can bypass it on Highway 100. Uh, one of the former presidents saw me and he said, you know, you were instrumental in getting that bridge built. And I made some joke about why isn't my name on it? And he said, well, you didn't fund it. You just were instrumental in getting it built. I get that, and I really didn't want my name attached to it or anybody to remember my getting hit by a car, but it makes me wonder, what did he mean by that? I didn't build the bridge. I didn't put up the money for it. 
I didn't lobby for it or argue the case for its existence. I just got hit by a car. But that one little event evidently had something to do with the construction of the bridge. I think what he meant was in meetings with city officials and state representatives, that was an example that was brought up time and time again about how dangerous that highway was for the students at Freed Hardeman University. I was just an example and an illustration, but no one knows the answer to this question. I wonder if I hadn't been hit by that car, would that bridge be standing there? And what would life be like in Henderson, Tennessee? Would it be a little different? Maybe, maybe not. Nobody really knows. Now, let me share another story with you. This is a story by Ray Bradbury called A Sound of Thunder. It's one of those time travel stories. It's about this guy named Eccles who pays money to this firm that promises to take you back in time to the age of the dinosaurs so that you can hunt for big game, the biggest game of them all, Tyrannosaurus rex. Eccles has paid his money, and he's proud of the fact that he's killed every big game animal on Earth, and there's nothing left for him to hunt, so he's ready for some fresh adventures. They warn him, though, that he must follow all of the rules. When he goes back in time, he's not to do anything, however minute it may seem, to alter the future. Eccles kind of brushes this off, but his guide, a guy named Travis, is very firm. He gives an explanation to Eccles. He tells him that by crushing just one little mouse under his foot, he could change the whole course of history. He says, well, what about the foxes that'll need those mice to survive? For want of ten mice, a fox dies. For want of ten foxes, a lion starves. For want of a lion, all manner of insects, vultures, infinite billions of life forms are thrown into chaos and destruction. Eventually, it all boils down to this. Fifty-nine million years ago, a caveman, one of a dozen on the entire world, goes hunting wild boar or saber-toothed tiger for food, but you, friend, have stepped on all the tigers in that region by stepping on one single mouse, so the caveman starves. And the caveman, please note, is not just any expendable man, no, he is an entire future nation. From his loins would have sprung ten sons, and from their loins one hundred sons, and thus onward to a civilization. Destroy this one man, and you destroy a race, a people, an entire history of life. It is comparable to slaying some of Adam's grandchildren. The stomp of your foot on one mouse could start an earthquake, the effects of which could shake our earth and destinies down through time to their very foundations. With the death of that one caveman, a billion others yet unborn are throttled in the womb. Perhaps Rome never rises on its seven hills. Perhaps Europe is forever a dark forest, and only Asia waxes healthy and teeming. Step on a mouse, and you crush the pyramids. Step on a mouse, and you leave your print like a grand canyon across eternity. Queen Elizabeth might never be born. Washington might not cross the Delaware. There might never be a United States at all, so be careful. Stay on the path. Never step off. Now, this path that Travis is talking about is an elevated walkway that extends from the time machine once they arrive at their destination and 
keeps them from treading on the plant life, the cockroaches, the teeming life that's swarming on the ground. They take every precaution to to make sure that Eccles and his fellow hunters don't harm the ecology. They've even gone to so much trouble to find a, a species, uh, a specimen rather, of T-Rex that is going to die anyway and have pinpointed the time at which a tree is to fall on him. And the plan is for the hunters to shoot the T-Rex right before the tree falls so that everything happens according to the way it did historically and nothing in the future changes. You can probably see that something's coming. Eccles, when he sees the T-Rex, he panics. He steps off the walkway And after the adventure is over, and they kill the T-Rex, he goes back to the future, not realizing he stepped upon a butterfly. And when he arrives back to his present day, everything has changed. There's a new government in power, not a good one. And Eccles has the evidence of why on his boot heel a dead prehistoric butterfly. Hearing that, you may think, well, that's a good story, but what's the big deal? It's actually an early description of a scientific theory known as chaos theory. Chaos theory is the idea that exceedingly small changes in initial conditions can cause dramatic changes in outcomes. Bradbury just had this idea for a story But a few years later, a meteorologist named Edward Lawrence noticed that by plugging in slightly different initial conditions, he got dramatically different forecasts, and he began talking about the butterfly effect. I don't know if he was influenced by Bradbury's story or this is just a coincidence that both the men used butterflies to illustrate this concept, but um, Lawrence's illustration of the butterfly was different from the story that Bradbury told He is the one who, and you've probably heard this analogy before, said that a butterfly flapping its wings in China could disturb enough atmospheric particles perhaps to cause a tornado in New Mexico three weeks later. When he first started talking about this, people laughed and dismissed him, but now it's a law, it's understood that chaos theory is a real thing, and people are using it to describe our universe. Until chaos theory, people thought in terms of Newton's physics. Newton posited a clockwork universe and seemed to believe, and others after him believed the same thing, that if we could just plot out cause and effect, if we could learn enough about the laws of nature and plot out cause and effect, we would be able to determine any outcome. He saw the universe as something that was calculated and predictable. People don't see the world that way anymore. I described chaos theory to my wife this way. My wife was born in Elkhart, Indiana. And I said, imagine how you got to where you are today. Mother of two children, wife of me, Maybe she, maybe she doesn't like to imagine that, but imagine that, living in central Alabama, doing what she does, 
You didn't get here from point A to point B. You didn't just go straight from Elkhart, Indiana to central Alabama and this life that you have. There were a series of seemingly random events that led to your being here. And if you had been born just one bed over from the hospital room you were born in, in Indiana, those years ago, you might be in a totally different place now. Who knows, but you might be married to somebody else, or not married at all, or a mother of seven children, or no children. Who knows? That's kind of a rough illustration of chaos theory. Chaos theory is often misunderstood as an explanation of the universe as disordered versus ordered, but that's not an accurate description of what chaos theory is saying. I think the word chaos leads to that misunderstanding. It's not saying that everything is necessarily unpredictable, it's just underpredicted. We don't have the brain power to foresee the complexities of possibilities that lay before any given action, causal action. Computers have helped us see things better, certainly, but they can't even they can't even do it. One scientist said you'll need a computer as big as the universe to be able to compute all the possibilities that come out of any given action. And so we are able to see, though, that what seems like disorder is actually a strange and exquisitely beautiful pattern. And really, the only predictable outcome is surprise. The reason I'm talking about chaos theory is that this may give us a way to understand how God operates in the universe. Most people, if they believe in God, think of him operating in our universe in one of two ways. Either he is a deistic God that wound up the universe like a clock and just sits back, not interfering in any way, watching it wind down until maybe at the end of time he'll break in or just allow things to keep on going until entropy takes over once and for all. On the other hand, other people see a miracle in everything, and they see God as breaking his laws over and over again, superseding the things that he set in place when he created the world, and that has its own problems as well. For instance, does God have to disrupt the cosmos every time he answers prayer? If he does, what kind of consequences occur from that? What happens to the person next to me if he disrupts everything just for me? There are seven billion plus people on the earth right now. That just doesn't seem like a feasible solution to the problem either. Chaos theory suggests something in between miracles and deism. It's often simplified as providence. That's the way I usually describe it, not having put a whole lot of thought into what I'm saying when I say the word providence. I usually say something like God answers prayer and he is active in our lives, but he acts through providence, not miracles. Providence is God's non-miraculous way of using the nature, the, the laws of nature that he has set in place to accomplish his purposes in human history. I usually give some explanation like that and try to move on to the next subject, but chaos theory gives us maybe more explanation about what providence is. 
And it says that the future is not closed, that the universe, contrary to Newton, is not deterministic. It's not necessarily headed in this way or another, but the future is wide open. And God could, if he wanted to, push an electron on the edge of the galaxy and alter history without breaking his laws or upsetting the cosmos in answering every prayer. Let's take an example from quantum physics. Let's say you have a radioactive element that has a half-life of one hour, which means that half the atoms in the sample will decay in that period of time. But what if the sample is reduced down to just one radioactive atom? That means it has a 50-50 chance of decaying within an hour. What if you had a cat in the room and the decaying of the atom would release poisonous chemicals, poisonous toxins that would kill the cat? The question is, in a given hour, when you have this situation going on, will the cat live or die? And the amazing thing about this is that there is absolutely no way to predict the outcome. You could run the experiment as many times as possible and never be able to predict it. It's possible that you could run the experiment a hundred times and the cat will live every single time, or you could run it a hundred times and the cat could die every single time, or anything in between. And I give this example just to show that this may be a decision point in which God can act, meaning God may be the one who's deciding whether or not that atom decays or not when there's a 50-50 chance. Chaos theory may be the explanation for God's providence because it leaves all of this room for God to act in our lives and intervene. And it leaves that room without disrupting science, without conflicting with natural law at all. Now, a good question is, what about us? Where does that leave us? And what role do we play in our fate and in our destinies? That's a very good question. It's one that I've wondered about quite a lot myself. Do my actions matter at all? And chaos theory would say, God's actions matter and your actions matter too. It may work like this. God may enforce some kind of top-to-bottom influence on the universe while we're at the same time influencing a bottom-to-top influence. And these somehow mysteriously work together. That's the way the world works. There are a lot of analogies of this. Think about your brain. In your brain, two things are going on at the same time, one from the top to bottom, the other from the bottom to the top. From the bottom up, your neurons and chemical processes and the the physical things about your brain, the biological systems in your brain, are affecting your consciousness. And then top to bottom, your mind is also influencing things as well. So these two things work together, and your mind is deciding, will I pay attention to this feeling that I'm having? Will I fight against this 
habit that's being uh, influenced by a neural pathway in my brain. And, and those neural pathways and those chemicals may be causing habits and depression and feelings that you can't necessarily explain, but you can fight. So these two things are going on, and in the dynamic is the actual outcome. Well, that may be the way the universe works on a grander scale. While we are making choices and exercising our free will and running into consequences, uh, coincidences, I mean, and randomness and interacting with others and having relationship problems and, and making friends. And while we're doing all of those things, at the same time, God and His providence may also be acting, and this dynamic is what we get as an outcome. There's a principle in chaos theory called feedback, which says that systems become chaotic when they react to themselves. You can think of the stock market. Um, you can't predict the stock market, and one of the reasons you can't fully predict the stock market is it reacts to itself. As things happen, changes are immediately made within the dynamic that causes other outcomes that you may have never been able to see coming. Anybody who's tried to invest and work the stock market knows there is just a little predictability to it, but overall it is very unpredictable and seemingly random. There's a lot of feedback in the system. There's a lot of what Aquinas called secondary causes that are contingent but that have an influence on the way the world works. These examples of these secondary causes are the laws of nature, gravity, second law of thermodynamics, uh, then what we call chance, which one wonders, is this really chance or is this God acting on our world? And then, of course, human agents exercising their free will. These things are happening, and the smallest change, the very minutest decision, can affect the outcome. It can have drastic effects on down the road. It could be the flapping of a butterfly's wing that causes a tornado two continents over. And so our actions are very meaningful, and we need to be careful about our choices and our actions because they have huge consequences. There are several stories in the Bible that, that tell this, and I'll share a couple of familiar ones I'm sure you've already heard before. One has to do with Esther, the queen. How did Esther become queen? That's a whole story in itself. And then how did she come to the point where she saved her people from extermination under Persia? It's a fascinating story. The book of Esther begins with the seemingly random thing of Queen Vashti refusing a request of her husband and embarrassing him in front of his friends so that he put her away. That left room for a new queen and through a series of other seemingly random events, Esther became that queen. She happened to be a Jewish person. She happened to have an uncle who adopted her, who had some influence in the king's court, Mordecai. He happened to have an enemy named Haman, which helped seem to hurt matters at the beginning, but actually worked in the Jews' favor in the end. 
And all of these things in the book of Esther show God's hand in the matter, but there are people influencing as well. That's how God's providence works. Now, the really interesting thing is there is more to that than just what is told in Esther. I mean, how did Vashti become the one who sat on the throne and married King Ahasuerus first? How did she come to have the courage to stand up for herself and face banishment? How did she have that kind of character? And who were her parents and who instilled that in her? And how did she even come to um, physically be in the, the, the area, the same area as the man that she would marry? You know, there's so many variables involved. It may go back centuries before the events of Esther's life unfolded. Another great example is from the New Testament in the book of Philemon. In the book of Philemon, Paul is writing a friend of his who lives in Colossae about his friend Philemon's slave, Onesimus, who'd run away to Rome and who happened to come into contact with Paul, who happened to be in prison in Rome at the time, and who also happened to be a Christian and happened to be the friend of Philemon, who had some influence with him. And Paul is writing Philemon saying, I'm sending your slave back to you. He's obeyed the gospel. He's now a Christian. Receive him no longer as a slave, but as a brother beloved in the Lord. Now, in both the books of Esther and Philemon, there is a a subtle reference to the providence of God. The reference in Esther is in Esther chapter 4, verse 15, where Mordecai tells Esther, Who knows whether you've come to the throne for such a time as this? He doesn't know for sure. He understands with great humility the complexity of the situation. And he knows there's a lot of uncertainty, but still he's a believer in God and he thinks that God is acting on their behalf. And so he expresses his faith in that statement. Paul has a similar humility in his letter to Philemon. He says, For perhaps he was parted from you for, for a season so that he could be returned to you no longer as a slave but as a brother beloved in the Lord. Perhaps in Philemon, who knows in Esther, those are good ways to express the providence of God because we must approach this with humility, not even knowing if chaos theory, if we fully understand chaos theory, and definitely not knowing what role we have played, what role chance and coincidence have played, what role God has played in the matters. The two things I want you to see from this is chaos theory, science, now leaves enough openness and randomness for God to act. The thing that I want you to see from this is that chaos theory is a scientific explanation, perhaps, for how God works in the universe. The Bible says that Christ sustains the universe, Colossians 1, that he upholds the universe by the word of his power, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, that he is the word, the reason for the universe, the meaning behind the, the universe. Maybe chaos theory is part of that. It at least does away with the idea that everything is already predetermined by laws and we just need to discover the laws. It shows that there are an infinite 
number of possibilities that are out there and that God could work in that seeming randomness to bring about his purposes. And then I also want you to see how a slight contribution of your life can make drastic differences in outcomes, just like the butterfly's flapping wings. Your small actions really matter. And I don't want you to say, well, I don't matter. I'm insignificant. Nobody pays attention to me. I have no influence in the world. Even the most introverted people in the world have great influence. Even the most seemingly insignificant people in the world have great influence. So use your influence. Don't throw it away. Realize that you're a person that has an important significance in this world. Hey, I had no idea when I was hit by a car that day that I might actually be an example that helped get a bridge built in Henderson, Tennessee. But there's the monument to my small, insignificant action. I didn't even have to exert a whole lot of energy. I just had to be in the way of a guy who was in a hurry one morning on his way to work. I want to end with The Road Not Taken by Robert Frost. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both. And be one traveler, long I stood, and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other, as just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for that the passing there had worn them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay, and leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day, yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. <laughs>